You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Creppy, the Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. That's, of course, where you can check out all of our fine Ducks coverage. And there will be plenty more coming this week. Obviously heading into a very big game with BYU. A first uh, top 25 matchup for Autzen Stadium since 2018. I actually had to double check that. And I had been at all these games. But uh, I honestly thought there was another top 25 matchup since then. But it was the walk-off overtime touchdown by C.J. Verdell against Washington. It was the last time that the Ducks hosted a top 25 matchup where they were also ranked. So really a, a big-time game. It should be a great atmosphere. One of only two top 25 games in the country this weekend. So they have center stage uh, in that particular time slot in the middle of the day at 12.30 on Fox to themselves. And uh, again, BYU coming off a tremendous game. We will certainly set that game up and chat with uh, BYU beat reporter uh, Jay Drew later on and get his uh, early insight on the Cougars who are coming off a uh, just terrific win over Baylor in a double overtime game late Saturday night. I know a lot of folks got a chance to see that, obviously, as well. Briefly to recap the Eastern Washington game, because I those who've, who've obviously heard me wax poetic about FCS games before know that I'm no fan of these particular matchups. Uh, I don't think they have a... Uh, particularly great purpose, but be that as it may, uh, <laughs> the game was played, so we will go over it briefly, but we're not going to put a ton of stock into a lot of things because there's not a lot of stock to put into these kind of games. Um, in the big picture, Oregon wanted to go in with a pretty concise and precise game plan and just focus on execution. It did that. It achieved that. There were no glaring mistakes or errors from a truly big picture standpoint, I'm not talking about every single player because, you know, we don't know every single assignment and, you know, somebody may have blown an assignment here or there, but I'm talking about in big picture in terms of massive turnover issues or just a, a ridiculous number of penalties or, um, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, yeah, there were some miscues. Yeah, special teams, you know, had its moments that were good and had some moments that weren't so good. Uh, but those are more, like I say, on the smaller scale. And I'm talking more in the bigger picture when we're talking like the week before the issue for those who watched the telecast, you saw, you know, the PAC 12 networks talking about 29 missed tackles against Georgia uh, and plenty of other missed issues along the way. Obviously the turnovers as well. Those were the bigger things. They were not the glaring decision-making issues or tackling issues or those sorts of things. They went with a clear game plan 
no, they didn't throw the ball particularly deep. They didn't have to throw the ball particularly deep. You don't want to show anything you don't have to on film. As a coach, I don't care which side of the ball. I don't care which position we're talking about. You don't want to show anything you don't have to in a game like that. What you want to show on film is basically the same collection of about 10 plays, if you can do it. And maybe a couple of things to either test out and or leave as a little bit of a nugget for somebody else to have to prepare for when you know darn well you're not actually going to use it against them, but just to try and make them waste their time. That's the only thing that that kind of a game serves. And 70-14 to achieves that in every way imaginable. So don't look at the statistics in a huge way. And I'm somebody who has to, you know, I write up every week what the stats are uh, for where Oregon ranks each week. But again, take it with a grain of salt by way of it's a two-game sample in the season as a whole. But when one is against the number one team in America and the other is against an FCS opponent who, by my totally objective assessment Saturday, did not come to play that game. Eastern Washington did not come to play that game. That's what, even more so why I say don't put into it. And why do I say that? Beyond the fact that they got their doors blown off, which that's beside the point. When you when you <laughs> pass on third and one at your own like 35-yard line, 34-yard line, and then follow it up and punt in a one-score game on at the very beginning, I mean, you're basically telling your guys you have no particular confidence in your offense at that point. So it was a payday game. It served its purpose for both sides. Oregon got to play a ton of players and execute and test some things out. And Eastern Washington got its payday, one of two on the season. I can only hope that they, when they go down to Gainesville that they put forth a little bit more uh, effort in that regard. But to Oregon's perspective, I thought Bo Nix was obviously very accurate. Again, we understand the opponent. We understand the caliber of play. I'm talking about accuracy. I'm talking about decision-making. Obviously, very accurate, efficient. Again, no major glaring mistakes of any kind. Were there a couple of missed opportunities? Yeah, there were. There were. Ones where he completed passes. I know of um, one in particular. I wrote down all of them, but uh, there was one in particular to the right side. I believe it was to Chase Coda, where he threw to the right side. Pass was complete, but based on the way that the coverage was rotating, uh, the safety had come down towards the receiver who he threw to in the flat and the outside receiver who was running a slant if he had waited just a second not not even a full second a a split second the safety had rolled down to the guy underneath to where if Bo throws to the uh, slant route that guy's still running I believe it was Dante Thornton if memory serves me correctly Uh, either Dante or Troy or maybe Hudson either way whoever was on the outside they they had nothing but green grass in front of them. Uh, so there were a couple of instances of that. And by a couple, I literally mean like two. Uh, so when you have that kind of an accurate performance, 28 of 33, of those, there was a drop by a running back. There were multiple throwaways. I think there were actually two drops in that. So frankly, of the five incompletions, I think only one was a particularly legitimate quote-unquote legitimate incompletion by way of throwaways or or drops i mean if you take that out of the equation like i say nicks i think only had one true incompletion now you could say yeah but they'll also the touchdown pass to ferguson 
got uh, gifted by way of a bobble and stuff. Yeah, but that's part of football. Some, you know, that's part of any sport. Sometimes, you know, better be lucky than good sometimes. No, I'm not going to tell you that was a great pass. No, it wasn't. But, hey, it worked out. So, you know, if you're going to haggle over one, every single one of those over the course of a season, you're going to be keeping a pretty long tally, you know, of everything that goes against you or for you. So, bottom line, accurate, efficient, good decision-making. Were there opportunities for better? Yes, that's part of playing the sport. That's That's just part of it. But ultimately, in a game like that, what you want is exactly that. Now, had he gone in and been 17 of 33 with three touchdowns and an interception, we'd be talking about something different. 28 of 33 with five touchdowns, I don't care who you're playing, that's just hard to do. The other team is trying. Even even Eastern Washington was actually trying uh, this past week, at least defensively, the players were. Defensively for the Ducks, again, you could obviously see that the tackling was much better. You knew it would be. Yes, there were smaller and slower competitions, so that goes without saying. But 87 passing yards allowed is still, again, hard to do. Against an Eastern Washington team who is ranked in the FCS and can throw. You know, their quarterback didn't have a great night statistically, certainly, but against his level of competition, he's a pretty darn good player. Or at least has been to start the season. So, We'll see how that shakes out in terms of how that ultimately stacks up in, in the long run. But in the short run, the defense did well. Kickoffs and special teams. I don't want to overreact to too small a sample. Uh, we got some clarification from Dan Lanning Monday night that uh, the reason why Camden Lewis took the uh, kickoffs, took that back over again, was Andrew Boyle was a little bit dinged up, according to Lanning. So... That's why Lewis took it back over last week. We'll see if that proceeds accordingly. Six of 10 on touchbacks, which is a pretty good clip. But on the four that were not for touchbacks, three were returned for basically average returns, a couple for 16 yards, I think, and one for 24, 27. But the particularly long return of 47, that was not good. Not just because, oh, you know, it was a long return. What are you going to do? Lewis actually had the tackle on the play. But it got compounded on itself in that the kick was not where it needed to be. Coverage lanes were not good. It gets returned 47 yards, and then it gets capped off to boot with a targeting penalty at the end that puts it into plus territory all the way inside Oregon's 40. And like Landing said, you can't have that. No, you can't. I mean, can you imagine if that happens in a close game against either BYU this weekend or Utah or UCLA or you name it. I mean, it's going to be a very different kind of feeling. Doing it in a game where you win by you know seven, eight scores is one thing. Doing it in a game in a close moment, you know that these these are the things you have to prepare for, and these are the instances that you have to use and really learn from and get corrected in a hurry. They've allowed a couple of long returns. They've also had a few returns, like I say, were basically average in distance. Oregon also used at least three different kickoff formations on Saturday night for those who really pay attention to and get into the weeds of some of the practice of it all, let alone the varying personnel of it. So a lot of things to still work out. Those are the big picture things. To the specifics uh, beyond, obviously, the quarterback play. Cam McCormick, in the big picture and in the immediate for the season, for the week, Cam McCormick's moment is what's going to be remembered from this game. If anybody outside those who were playing in the game 
and and their respective families. Uh, I have a particularly long memory of Oregon Eastern Washington uh, more than five minutes after the game was over. It will be because Cam McCormick wore number 18 and because he scored a touchdown for the first time since 2017. That's the moment of the night. That's the biggest moment of the game by far. There, That's what should be remembered in this game. For those who want to Obviously, fans want to focus on the big picture stuff and they want to focus on the media and they want to talk about quarterback play and all those things. I get it. I totally get it. But in terms of what we're actually going to talk about what happened Saturday night, what happened Saturday night was a seventh-year senior scored his first touchdown since 2017 and he did it while honoring a fallen teammate. That's what Saturday night was about. And by the way, this was not at a charity. This wasn't just a feel-good story. Cam McCormick started that game, and Cam McCormick played really well. Frankly, the entire tight end group played really well. Obviously, Terrence Ferguson catches a couple of touchdowns, the one I mentioned before with the bobble pass early, but he had a couple. First tight end for the Ducks to do that since Jake Breland in 2019 against Stanford. The tight end group as a whole has played really well so far this season. Blocked extraordinarily well. I know against the competition. Trust me, even the 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 leap that Terrence Ferguson and Maliki Matavao have taken in blocking in space it, it, compared to last year is enormous already. I mean it, it it just jumps out when you watch back at the tape and, and see some of the stuff in slow motion. And again McCormick and and Patrick Herbert obviously were out, you know, the past couple of years due to injury, but seeing them back seen them block, catch, you name it. They've been meaningful contributors. Like I say, this wasn't just Cam getting the ball in a blowout game for a moment. He started and played well. And for those who caught it, Pro Football Focus had him as one of the top graded tight ends in the country last week. Now, again, yes, the competition. Again, we'll caveat everything. We understand the competition. We're talking about a seventh-year senior who's barely played in four years. Again, I don't care who you're playing. Playing at a high level is still the desired outcome, and Cam McCormick has gotten back on the field and is playing very well so far. So that, to me, is on the story of the night. That is the story of the night. Dan Lanning's first win as an Oregon head coach, Cam McCormick catching a touchdown while honoring Spencer Webb. Those are the stories of the night. And as I say, the tight end play or quarterback play or how the defense tackle other stuff. Yeah, that's sometimes into the weeds, sometimes bigger picture, but in the stories of the night, those are the two big things. For sure. In terms of stuff that could carry over to BYU, what little success Eastern Washington did have, particularly on that short field, like I say, after the long kickoff return, was they moved into 20, 21, and 22 personnel, which for those who aren't into the football jargon, uh, that is two backs, no tight ends, two backs, one tight end, two backs, two tight ends. That's what they scored on the touchdown. Uh, on the first touchdown. Vice versa, if we talk about 11 or 12 personnel, it's one back, one tight end, one back, two tight ends, one back, three tight ends for 13 if we get there, etc. So they went into that more on that short possession and threw in some interesting formations that they didn't use as much before that. There was a bunch formation at receiver, which is not in and of itself reinventing the wheel, uh, but there was a clustered uh, three split out wide left uh, 
receiver formation at one point. They also use, it wasn't on that particular possession, but at one point Eastern actually used an unbalanced formation where they had five eligible receivers on one side of the formation, which you obviously don't see very often. Uh, the running back was to the left of the quarterback and all there were three receivers, a tight end and the running back, all the left of the quarterback. And yes, it was still, you know, a legal formation the two guys in the line of scrimmage, three offset, but it was just highly unusual. Uh, very strange to look at when it came out there. And like I say, those are a couple of things of note, not because we care what Eastern Washington does, but because how that might apply with BYU. They're a shotgun-based offense. They're going to whip the ball around. Jaron Hall is one of the top, in my estimation, one of the top 15, at least, if not top 10 quarterbacks in college football. Uh, forget about his size. I'm not talking about how he translates to the pros. I'm talking about caliber of player at this level. He's got it. Take a look at his efficiency numbers dating back to last season. Take a look at his QBR numbers dating back to last season. He is absolutely up there, and he's got the weapons to use. And BYU can go empty and go four and five wide sets. BYU can go to, like I mentioned, 20 personnel, two backs out of the shotgun. You saw that. If you take a look at the highlights uh, from the game with Baylor on Saturday, you saw they went two backs, one tight end, two backs, no tight ends. I don't know how much 22 personnel they're necessarily going to use, but at times they might, uh, goal line in particular. So those are sort of the things that Eastern put on tape for the Oregon defense to try to use and apply to both correct for themselves and also it still applies this week against a much better opponent, a a much, much, much better opponent. I'm not going to get into a whole bunch of the other positions by way of you know production and who did what and you name it because Again, the running backs were all going to get a ton of carries. They did. In a game like that, that's by design. You're not going to lean on any one running back a ton in, in an FCS game. You win by 56 points. So I'm not going to blow that out of proportion. Who got the ball in the bevy of receivers to catch passes? I get same thing. Yes, Troy Franklin obviously had a really nice night. 10 catches, a career high for him. And again, as a whole, I'm not going to get into every single stat line because we'd be here all day for, for an FCS game where virtually everybody on the roster got in. So bottom line, they achieve what they look to achieve from the game as a whole, for one. But two, like I say, plenty of things in the small picture and to take a look and, and see and how that looks into uh, BYU. What else may translate? What else may carry beyond? All right, something to correct on special teams. Nix's decision-making certainly back on track albeit against the competition, and then, like I say, how uh, something that Easton did that may apply. Something else that uh, may apply, frankly, Oregon should hope it applies against BYU, very badly hope it applies against BYU, is uh, Oregon's new version of its dime package. Uh, obviously, this, you know, for those who've uh, uh, followed uh, much of my reporting the past couple of years, uh, I, I kind of weighed into the weeds with some of this stuff and talked about how Andy Avalos's uh, use of that in the 2019 uh, season uh, really helped out, or excuse me, in the 2020 season um, also had a big impact on that defense uh, and the situational awareness and picking up on third and long and the impacts there in 2020. Tim DeRuder had a different version last year, much more traditional uh by way of personnel, didn't get too exotic with it. Uh, and Dime is just six defensive backs for those, again, who aren't into the uh, football vernacular. But Nickel is five, Dime is six. Uh, 
Oregon is using a a little bit more of an exotic look uh, under Lanning and Tosh Lapoy in this particular, in their version of the dime. And from what I can see, the player who, and again, we're going on like a three-play sample, so let's not get too carried away. One play was the early third down, uh, obvious passing situation. That's when they've employed it so far. has been third and long. They haven't relied on it yet on a second down. I think part of that is just because of circumstance and happenstance. They didn't, I'm sure they didn't want to uh, use it more than they had to against Eastern uh, for one, because they weren't dialing up a whole lot of exotic simulated pressures either. Uh, again, you don't want to put a lot on tape and I'm not knocking them for it. You don't want to. Uh, and with George, obviously we know how the game went. You know, it wasn't a matter of desire. It was a matter of, of the way the game was playing out. But from, what I could see, one play uh, in dime on the longer third down early against Georgia. And then a couple of instances on third and long. It was like third and 10 or 11 and third and nine uh, against Eastern. Oregon's dime, Jeff Bossa plays a particularly big role in this uh, because in the first rep of it last week, he starts off at the second level and then pre-snap drops all the way back to basically being the deep center field safety. And that they, they're playing it differently with three deep safeties in their dime. Whereas the Ruder was playing it much more traditional. And yeah, at times somebody may drift back into coverage, but ultimately uh, the overall safety look was with McKinley and Brian Addison deep splitting the field. Here they're going with three deep safeties. On the first rep of it on Saturday, Bassa drops there, drops there, doesn't even start there pre-snap, drops all the way back there, uh, basically on the snap. And on the second go of it, he's in at linebacker, and they went with a different look uh, by way of personnel. And again, that some of that was just because of the, the timing of the game and and who was in and whatnot. So bottom line. It's a different look. How does that apply to BYU? Well, again, like we're just talking about, if they go four and five wide receivers, you have to match that as a defense with an additional defensive back in all likelihood. And that may not always be on third and long, obvious passing situations where you are trying to get some pass rush. You're trying to get and pin your ears back for your pass rushers. You sometimes have to go to dime just based on situation. It may be a first and 10. Again, look at those teams that are air raid based and things and how that might apply also later when you're playing Wazoo, who, by the way, in case you forgot, you're also playing a week later. So some of these things that don't just apply for BYU apply the following week and apply potentially more than just obvious third and seven plus, third and nine plus passing situations. Multiple pressures that Oregon got, the sacks, tackle for loss, they got on those obvious passing situations where DJ Johnson, Casey Rogers were able to, like I say, pin their ears back and get to the quarterback. Keith Brown late in a similar situation. So a personnel grouping worth paying attention to. Obviously everybody wants to, you know, see the defense get sacks and be more productive in that way. And every which other thing, like I say, I don't think they were dialing up a whole lot of, uh, simulated pressures and blitzes and stuff because they didn't have to. I think you also wanted to judge and assess, are you able to generate pass rush with three or four? If you drop seven and eight, 
more of you know over the course of the night. Can you hold them under 100 yards passing? They did, and can, can you be really effective in coverage that way and focus on that? And yeah, can you just generate rush without needing the blitz and against an FCS team who look? Eastern, the one thing I'll give Eastern credit for heading into the game was that you knew that their offensive line was not going to be too bad because they measured up. You know, it's usually in games like that, sometimes the battle of the trenches is the most obvious, you know, decided advantage. Oregon had an advantage. Oregon did well in that regard. But having said that, Eastern did not get humiliated by its offensive line at all. Not in the least. Yeah, when they got when Oregon got through and generated some pressure and got some sacks and TFLs, uh, and particularly in the passing game, it was on obvious passing downs. Well, you know, at times there, that was because Eastern was trying to go four and five wide in order to provide more options to its quarterback. So those are those instances that pop up. Otherwise, in terms of what else may apply from this past week to BYU, not a whole lot. Uh, not a whole lot at all. <laughs> so uh, those those are the big ones. To set up and give an early look before we chat, as I say, uh, with Jay Drew of the Deseret News to get his insight on the Cougars. I'm not sure, outside of the fact that it was a late game and obviously people giving some credit uh, where credit is due to BYU winning a, a ranked game uh, against a really good Baylor team uh, at home and, and whatnot. I think a lot gets caught up in the ending and kickers making kicks or missing kicks and all those sadness that hey the one part that at least i've seen nationally or haven't seen nationally is in the chess game of that game in the chess match the game within the game where baylor offensive coordinator jeff grimes a two-time broils finalist who which is virtually unheard of much like dan lanning was a two-time broils finalist grimes is a two-time broils finalist on the other side of the ball it is mystifying to most people in the business that Jeff Grimes isn't a head coach yet, and he might be in about 90 days in this next coaching cycle. He is one of the best offensive minds in the game. That is bar none. He might be, I mean, as an offensive coordinator, he might literally be the best right now in the game. One up, Right on up there in a non-head coach offensive coordinator right now. He's right up there. Now, he did coach at BYU his first time he was a Burrell's finalist, so this is part of it in the context of the whole thing. Him matching up with a team he coached at a couple of years ago against, obviously, coaching staff who knew him well. They played last year, and you know Baylor put up a whole bunch of points on that defense. A top 25 unit the last couple of years at BYU with basically the same players. And Kalani Sataki and his defensive staff absolutely out-schemed Jeff Grimes and the Baylor offensive staff and... As I say, the game within the game aspect of that, all the credit in the world to Kalani Sataki and his defensive staff. And that is not easy to do. Not at all. And like I say, I hold Jeff Grimes in incredibly high regard, and I'm not alone in that regard. So do not, as a Ducks fan, I can only urge Ducks fans, do not remotely overlook or underestimate this BYU defense at all. At all. They played a very good Baylor team and held them more than in check. And like I say, it's beyond just, oh yeah, the players got to go out and make the plays, no doubt about it. But they generated pass rush. They generated tackles for loss. 
You could say, well, Bailey had 152 rushing yards. Yeah. But with the four sacks, it averages out to 2.9 yards a carry on 52 carries. 2.9. Yeah, BYU couldn't run the ball either. But you know that Baylor's defense is terrific. You know that anything Dave Aranda touches defensively is going to be tremendous. And it was. Hey, they got beaten overtime, 26 to 20, double overtime, 26 to 20. It was 20 points in regulation. I mean, it was that kind of a game. But I say, do not remotely underestimate the caliber of defense coming in here to Otson on Saturday. BYU has been a top 25 unit the last couple of years. And like I say, in the chess match, they absolutely outmaneuvered somebody who, yeah, they have knowledge of him. Well, look, he has knowledge of them. And one of the best in the sport. So this is a big time. Forget Yes, on the field, it's big. There's going to be great players on the field. Going to play from Jaron Hall, at quarterback, to you know Christopher Brooks, former Cal running back, who I'm sure many Oregon fans still remember from seeing him for several years now. This will be the last time you finally see him. Uh, and we'll see whether or not Puka Nakua, former Washington receiver, comes back uh, off injury. But this is a really talented BYU team, not just offensively. Like I say, defensively, not a not a bunch of national household names, not guys who are, you know, on every which award list and you name it, but guys who have put up numbers, guys who have generated, whether we're talking about just gross production and tackles, tackles for loss, a linebackers at interceptions for like four years running. That's not easy to do. They've got players, a lot of them. This is a really talented team. Goes without saying, yeah, number 12 in the polls. again. And just as a last bit before we get to Jay Drew, uh, and we'll touch on it again, I'm sure, later in the week as well. Remember that the term upset is a betting term. I tweeted this out on, on Sunday, but for those who didn't see, it is a betting term. Upset has nothing to do with what the AP poll says, the coaches poll says, what any other poll says, or your general feelings of things. That is not an upset. Oregon is not attempting to upset BYU. It is the reverse. No matter what the polls say, upset is a betting term. Unless the betting line were to shift even more than it already has and flip all the way around to where BYU is favored, then Oregon would be attempting to upset BYU. Having said that, that's just, like I say, as a an aside. That's just basic, that's just statement of fact. I don't care about who's upsetting who or tempted to. This is a huge game. A huge game and a really good game. One of, like I said before, only one, two top 25 matchups in all of college football this weekend on national television. On Fox, it's got a major stage, major players, major coaches. What more can you ask for? And for Ducks fans who are obviously many coming down from Portland, you got it in the middle of the day, so you don't have to worry about you know a super early kick, and you're not getting a night kick, you know, to where you're worried about driving home at the midnight or one in the morning. This is exactly all the things you would draw by way of setting, stage, standalone TV viewing caliber players on the field and everything else to go with it. The stakes are huge. 
And again, we'll touch on it throughout the course of the week and all our coverage on OregonLive.com, obviously. And in the Oregonian, you can check us out there. If you don't already subscribe to the podcast, make sure you do. For those who already do, we thank you for that. But if you don't, make sure to do so. So that way it just goes automatically into your feed uh, each and every week. And uh, we'll be doing these, obviously, throughout the course of the season. Also be looking to incorporate more with our uh, Twitter spaces, uh, chats and whatnot. And uh, I hope to do that later this week, either Thursday or Friday, either way. But just giving folks a heads up for those who uh, haven't taken part in those uh, before. Those are obviously a, a pretty fun deal and uh, interactive and has been an organic thing amongst this fan base for going on uh, about 10, 11 months now. So uh, look to engage there and we'll look to do that, like I say, on either Thursday or Friday, probably Friday. Uh, ahead of the game and uh, do a little bit of a Q&A thing and you know we'll, we'll interact with folks uh, as always there so check us out there make sure to subscribe and for those who subscribe again thanks again give us a five-star review like the whole thing so that way you know more folks can check us out as well with that we will uh, move on to our conversation with BYU beat reporter Jay Drew And we now welcome to the Ducks Confidential Podcast, uh, BYU beat reporter for the Deseret News, Jay Drew, who you can follow on Twitter at Drew J J A Y. Uh, welcome to the program, sir. Thanks for having me on tonight. Well, I appreciate you for fitting us in in a, a busy game week, uh, not only this week, uh, Jay, but obviously last week for you guys. And that's actually where I want to start uh, beyond the obvious uh, historical context and people can look up you know, what a, a win over a Baylor team at home means for BYU by way of, you know, AP rankings and those sorts of things. But to me, what stands out so much um, beyond, you know, double overtime and the kickers at the end, we'll get to that. But this was a matchup of some of the best minds on their respective sides of the football in the game. You know, Jeff Grimes, a two-time Broyles finalist, the offensive coordinator at Baylor, and Kalani's obviously done a terrific job at BYU and has that defense playing at an elite level for a couple of years now. And credit where it is due. I don't, frankly, I don't think nationally Kalani and and the BYU defensive staff have gotten enough credit so far in the last forty eight hours. Uh, what is it like locally, though? Because to me, that was a matchup of epic proportions from a uh, chess master standpoint. And BYU doesn't just come up on top on the scoreboard. The BYU defense had a absolutely terrific night against one of the best offensive minds in the game. Yeah, for sure. And uh, your listeners may know this, but Jeff Grimes was BYU's offensive coordinator mm -hmm. for two years uh, under Sataki and left for Baylor two years ago, I think it was. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have that there. And and uh, a lot of credit, I think, has to go to uh, Elisa Tuiaki who came to BYU with uh, Kalani from Oregon State when Oregon State was a was uh, when Kalani was Oregon State's defensive coordinator and Elisa Tuiaki was uh, I think the linebackers coach so they kind of came as a package deal and and you're right the BYU defense has been underrated for several years now a lot of people talk about Zach Wilson and then last year what they did with uh, Jaron Hall but uh, the defense has been the constant throughout pretty much uh, Kalani's seven years in Provo. So, so uh, yes, that was a that was a pretty great performance. Con considering that a year ago in Waco, uh, the Bears put up 38 points and over 575 yards of offense on pretty much the same defense. It's uh, very few guys left, and and there's very few additions. So, 
quite a turnaround in one year. How is it that they got the pressure? For those who didn't uh, see all of the game Saturday night, because obviously lots of people caught the end and caught the overtimes and the kicks, but for those who didn't catch all of it, how is it that BYU's defense uh, was able to get freed up to not just say, oh, create pressure? No, they got, I mean, they got four sacks in the game again against, for folks, and I realize for, for um, most fans, they don't get into the weeds of, of this stuff when it comes to, you know, Broyles finalists and top coordinators and all that kind of stuff. But truly, I mean, I, I don't undersell Jeff Grimes. I can't believe he's not a head coach yet. Um, and he very well might be here in about 90 days uh, in, the, in this next coaching cycle. So how is it that the BYU defense was able to generate that volume of pass rush and disruptive plays against a Baylor offense who, like I say, is coached by one of the best? Yeah, BYU put a lot of emphasis this offseason on playing man defense with their corners and playing pressure man. BYU has rarely been able to do that just because of the type of players they get. Um in the defensive secondary, they uh, they played a lot of man pressure defense, which enabled them to you know to free up more linebackers to blitz, and then they put in some exotic blitz packages. Frankly, stuff that I haven't seen uh, very much out of BYU, and uh, I think they rattled Baylor's quarterback Blake Shapen. He uh, there were a couple times where he just looked totally confused, didn't know where pressure was going to come from. So I credit Tuiaki, like I said, for for that, but also um, kind of a general upgrade in BYU's secondary and the personnel they have back there, enable them, enabling them to to be more aggressive on defense and not sit back in zones and that sort of thing. You mentioned Jaron Hall before, and um, he is not just one of the better quarterbacks uh, on Oregon's schedule this year. Uh, and I wouldn't just say, oh, I'm on the independents because there aren't that many independent schools uh, left at this point. No, Jaron Hall is just one of the playing better quarterbacks in the country, period. Um, no qualifier. Uh, and it goes back to, if you look at his efficiency numbers from last year, if you go back to his QBR number from last year, uh, he's right on up there. What is it that makes him uh, so special? We can, I mean, again, the measurables, all right, maybe he doesn't have the prototypical size by way of height and those things. But short of that, again, at this level, uh, he is right on up there among the top probably 15 quarterbacks in all of college football. Yeah, he's a really good athlete. Some people don't know that he played baseball for the BYU baseball team for two years, uh, a lot like Kyler Murray. Um, he's got that uh, dual threat ability, and he's, he plays with a lot of poise. Uh, you don't see him make a lot of mistakes. He doesn't beat himself. He had only five interceptions last year in 10 games, and uh, this year he got one in the opener against South Florida, um, which wasn't really his fault, according to the offensive coordinator. But he's just a really smart, savvy athlete um, who doesn't seem to get rattled, just always is playing under control and with a lot of poise. And he's got a really good pocket presence. He kind of can sense when pressure is coming. Um, there have been a lot of BYU quarterbacks over the years who were really strong-armed, um, I'm thinking of like Tanner Mangum and maybe some others, but they didn't just they didn't have that presence where they could feel the rush, and uh, and Jaron Hall definitely has that. He's uh, he's on his way to some pretty great things. Um, his he's been kind of hit with some concussion issues. It's and he also had a bad hip that he had to sit out the 2020 season. But uh, when he's healthy, he's as he's as good as BYU's had. And at 6'1 and 205, it's actually pretty unusual to see a situation where he's now in a backfield where 
his backfield made on most plays, uh, Christopher Brooks, is actually considerably bigger than he is, uh, though they're about the same height. Uh, Brooks is, and again, Oregon fans obviously know Brooks well uh, from his time at Cal uh, when he went by uh, last name Brown, uh, Chris Brown Jr. Uh, now it's uh, Chris Brooks, and he was Chris Brooks last year for Cal as well, for, for Ducks fans looking that up. Uh, Brooks is 25 pounds heavier than his quarterback, which is not something you see every day. Uh, where the running back, albeit a powerful running back, uh, is considerably larger than the quarterback. Uh, how is that duo uh, looked here these first couple of games. Chris Brooks looked really good in the opener at USF. He, uh, I think he had 135 yards rushing. He busted off a 59-yard, 52-yard touchdown run um, on 13 carries. This last game against Baylor, he got 13 carries again, but Baylor's front seven is just phenomenal, and he found the going rough. I think he I can't remember exactly the numbers, but it was. Uh, I, I don't think he. I don't think he reached 50 yards even on 13 carries. So, um, so they bottled him up pretty well. The thing that I think he brings to BYU is kind of a pass catching uh, back out of the backfield. Last year they had Tyler Algier, who's now with the Atlanta Falcons, uh, set the BYU single season rushing yardage record but he wasn't much of a pass catcher. And that's the element that Chris Brooks gives them is that, is that option out of the backfield. So they're really excited about him. They think he's going to have a really good – this obviously will be his final year, and then he'll move on as a grad transfer. But uh, so far they've just raved about him and what he's been able to do in practice and, and how he can break tackles and be so versatile. So uh, sky is the limit for him. That's what the coaches are saying at BYU. Chatting with Jay Drew of the Deseret News as we get a early look at the BYU Cougars who come into Otson Stadium on Saturday to take on the Oregon Ducks in a top 25 matchup in one of the bigger games remaining on the schedule, really, for both teams. Uh, you know, there's a chance that BYU might be the highest ranked team, not named Georgia, that Oregon plays the rest of the way uh, with the way it's shaping up. And there's a chance that Oregon will be one of the uh, remaining ranked teams that BYU plays with the exception of perhaps Arkansas. Uh, and if Notre Dame can put it together, but Notre Dame's down to their backup quarterback and already has two losses. So we'll see what happens there. So like I say, really a, a pretty big game for both sides uh, at this stage and only you know the middle of September. Uh, tell us a little bit about the receiving core, Jay. I know that uh, Nakua and Romney were out last week. Uh, what's the word so far on the possibility of them returning this weekend? And uh, tell us a little bit about Chase Roberts, who obviously had a, a huge game against Baylor. Yeah, they're saying today that uh, those two receivers you mentioned, Romney and Nakua, are both going to be game-time decisions again. Um, it's 50-50. Um, we'll probably know Friday whether they make the trip or not. Uh, my sources are telling me that Nakua is, has a high ankle sprain. He's probably closer to playing. Um, he was really close before the Baylor game. They held him out. Uh, he, they said he was, you know, like maybe 25% or 75% ready. So they held him out. Romney's deal is a little different. He has a lacerated kidney. And so it's one of those things where he has to get cleared by, a, by, a, by his own medical doctor before he can play football again. Um, I'm obviously no doctor, but that sounds really dangerous to be playing with such a thing. So, so then uh, as far as Chase Roberts goes, he was a redshirt freshman, um, highly recruited out of high school, and then he went on a two-year Mormon mission. 
So BYU fans and everyone else pretty much forgot about him. Um, he, uh, without him, without his play the other night, they just don't win. He, he caught, uh, I think it was eight catches for 122 yards, made some spectacular plays, and also threw a touchdown pass on a trick play to, to Jaron Hall. So he was as good as advertised as, uh, as uh, BYU fans uh, found out and um, really was a real pleasant surprise because, um, with, like you said, those two receivers not playing without him, they would have gone, had to go really deep into their bench. And, and uh, although they've got some good young talented receiver coming up, they, those guys are nowhere near what, what Romney and Nakua are. Last thing on the offense, Jay, Tell us a little bit for again for Ducks fans who are going to be seeing BYU uh, for the first time, or certainly the first time this season, first time in person, I would imagine, uh, in, in a hot minute. Uh, what to expect by way of the offense, other than all right, we know we know some of the players there by name, but schematically, uh, even just taking a look at back at the highlights from Saturday, struck me that. I already knew that BYU was, you know, a shotgun-based offense, and really liked to whip it around. Again, like you mentioned um, with Zach Wilson, you know, everybody knew that for the past couple of years. But it's more than just saying, "Oh, they're going to go four and five wide all the time." Quite the contrary, um, they they employed even it looked like in the highlights I was seeing, uh, even some two back stuff, uh, two backs and a tight end. So they were throwing all kinds of different personnel packages out there, out of shotgun primarily, but. Uh, what should Ducks fans be on the lookout for uh, on Saturday? Yeah, all kinds of different formations. Sometimes they'll even go to the pistol, um, two back sets. Uh, they still use a fullback on occasion. Um, they've got they're really uh, excited about their tight ends. They got three really good tight ends: Isaac Rex, Mason Wake, and Alan Holker. So it's, uh, they'll go double tight a lot. Um, a lot of uh, they don't do it. They do some empty backfield. They started out that way against Baylor the other night with five wides and, and empty, and uh, it worked very well. But um, one of the main things we need to talk about is this is probably the best offensive line that BYU has had in Kalani Sataki's seven-year era. Every starter is back, plus a couple of guys who started have started in pre- previous seasons. Um, they're really, really big on their O line. Um, didn't do so well running the ball against Baylor as they had hoped they would, but uh, it's probably the strength of the offense really is that offensive line. And then, uh, like I mentioned before, uh, the tight ends, BYU has traditionally had a lot of good tight ends over the years, and and uh, Isaac Rex caught 12 touchdown passes two years ago as a freshman, and uh, he's back. He's he suffered an ankle, broken ankle against USC last year that kind of limited his late season production. But, but uh, he's a he's a really good player as well if they can get him going. Um, but it all comes down to that offensive line, and I think, if, like you said, if BYU is going to stay ranked and and keep winning, that offensive line is going to have to carry them, especially with these other injuries they've had. And certainly Ducks fans are uh, familiar with the name Kingsley uh, Suamatia, uh, who obviously was here at Oregon just just a year ago, uh, but obviously was uh, hopped in the portal there last September and uh, went back home to be close to home. Uh, as And he tweeted as much when he made the commitment to BYU. It was home 
Uh, and that's uh, that you kind of understood from the jump exactly what his motivation was there. Uh, so, again, I'm sure he'll be looking forward to the trip back to Eugene. And uh, at the same time, you know, some teammates going against him in practice uh, all over again, but now in a, in a far more meaningful spot. Tell us a little bit about uh, the defense in particular, Jay, uh, by way of, you know, the, the major playmakers, because uh, taking a look at, you know, again, anybody can look at the box score and see guys who stood out from, you know, the first couple of games. But who are some of the names, uh, particularly from a pass rush standpoint, negative play standpoint, who uh, Oregon should be, uh, you know, mindful of before the snap? Where, who are the guys they have to know where they're at and lined up at all times? Yeah, the, the strength of this BYU defense is the linebackers. They got uh, Keenan Peely, Peyton Wilgar, Max Tooley, and Ben Bywater. When they when they line up in a three four, which uh, they're kind of a multiple front, but uh, they'll go back and forth between a three four and a four three. But but uh, Max Tooley has been the one this year. He had a pick six against South Florida, and I think he had twelve tackles uh, against Baylor. He's uh, he's a kid. They say is he's kind of a a undersized linebacker. He was a safety. He's only about 210, 215 pounds, but. He's kind of the guy that's emerged as the playmaker this year. Um, and then uh, Keenan Peely will lead him in tackles. He's the middle linebacker. In BYU's defensive system, the middle linebacker always leads them in tackles. So I ex- he was hurt last year in game three against Arizona State. He suffered an ACL injury and was lost for the season, which is kind of why BYU's defense last year kind of went downhill after they beat uh, Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah, and then they lost Peely and kind of went, kind of struggled from there on out. Um, the offense had to carry them late to, to that 10 and 3 record. But um, BYU's always had trouble over the years getting pressure on the quarterbacks, and that's kind of been the same. Although you mentioned they had four sacks uh, Saturday, um, they really don't have a true bona fide edge rusher. Um, they have uh, Tyler Batty, defensive end. He left the uh, he left the Baylor game with abdominal what they called an abdominal strain. So I'm not exactly sure if he'll be playing this Saturday against the Ducks. He's obviously their best pass rusher, so that would be a big loss if he can't go. And then uh, I mentioned before this is the best cornerback group that BYU's had uh, because they can, like I said, play that press man defense. Um, and not get beat right off the ball. Uh, really speedy guys, uh, D'Angelo Mandel and Caleb Hayes, an Oregon State transfer. So uh, pretty solid defense. Not not a lot of great playmakers, but a, a lot of guys who are really solid in their assignments and, and know what they're doing out there and have been together for a couple of years now. Last couple of things for you, Jay. Uh, I mentioned we'd get to the kickers, uh, and obviously that's uh, you know, one of the major takeaways since it happens at the end of the game, and that's the unfortunate part of it for for Jake Oldroyd, uh, who misses the final two kicks. Uh, obviously, it doesn't come back to bite them. Uh, and for that matter, obviously, Baylor's kicker missed his in overtime as well. But having said that, two for four on the night uh, and the two clutch ones that uh, could have put it to bed, uh, it, 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 and make it a far less exciting uh, finish for everybody. Uh, what is the what is the feeling uh, about this kicker right now in the kicking game as a whole? Because, like I say, obviously you know it's you can't you can't replicate that, and you can't say about what they do in practice. 
Uh, it's what they do in that game situation. And this was a home game and uh, granted a huge, a huge moment for the young man. I, I feel for him. Uh, but like I say, he had a chance to put the game to rest uh, a couple of times and, and came up short. So what, uh, what's the feeling these days on the uh, special teams? Yeah, they had uh, special teams coach uh, Ed Lamb on today on, uh, on his coordinator's corner television show. And he basically said they're sticking with Jake Oldroyd, that he's their best kicker. They do have a backup kicker named Justin Smith, who saw some action last year when Oldroyd had some back issues. But uh, they're sticking with Jake Oldroyd. They're, two years ago, he was a Lou Groza finalist. So I think he went 14 of 15 on his field goals. And uh, last year wasn't quite as good. And then obviously what happened the other night. Um, but he's their guy. They're sticking with him. And uh, it'll be really, really interesting, obviously, when he lines up for that first field goal uh, against the Ducks on Saturday. You know, it's almost like a golfer that gets the yips with the four-foot putts. Uh, I know I've been there a lot where you just don't know if you can ever make one again. So that'll be really, really interesting and certainly a storyline to follow. Last thing is uh, something of the big picture, Jay. Um, Give Oregon fans a sense of, obviously, I can imagine uh, around Provo right now, it's got to be, uh, absolutely ecstatic uh, after Saturday night's win over Baylor uh, and really jacked up about this game coming up. What would another win, and uh, since upset is a betting term at the moment, barring a, a big shift in the betting line, another upset win, no matter what the polls say, uh, for BYU mean in this case, uh, if they were to get it? And conversely, what would a loss to Oregon uh, mean in that obviously they're going to still be in the top 25 and still be a great team but given what the schedule is in front of them with a win I mean there's no doubt in my mind with a win BYU is not just in the top 10 um, they, they could be headed to the top five in a hurry I would think and and with a long runway until that Arkansas game uh, or at the very least until the trip to South Bend so what's the feeling like in Provo these days and the outlook in terms of uh, with a win or a loss in Hudson on Saturday yeah, you captured it. The, the stakes just, you know, they get higher. That uh, There weren't a lot of people beginning of the season thought maybe they could take down Baylor, but now that they have, um, this, uh, this Oregon game is absolutely huge for them. Um, obviously, as an independent, uh, their only route to the, uh, to the college football playoff or even a New Year's Six game is, is pretty much an undefeated season. And uh, even – probably even one loss would take them out of it. So they just can't afford a hiccup. Um, ironically, uh, in 1990, the last time BYU beat a top 10 team at home, they beat Miami, number one Miami. And then three weeks, four weeks later, they went to Eugene and got upset by Oregon. I think BYU was number four at the time, and the Ducks beat them and kind of just ruined you know, that season. Ty Detmer went on to win the Heisman Trophy that year, but uh, – they were just never the same. So they're obviously hoping history doesn't repeat itself. But, um, you know, listening to a couple of players today, they, they know what they're facing with that. I think they called it a hostile crowd at Autzen. They know uh, that the Ducks are very, very good. Obviously, they share the same market out here with Utah. So they've watched Utah play Oregon over the years and, and know how good Oregon has been, with the exception of last year, obviously, is as uh, Ducks fans know, but, uh, but no, the plenty of respect from BYU. And obviously uh, they know that uh, the stakes are really, really high. And as long as they keep winning, they're going to keep getting higher. 
Again, he is Jay Drew of the Deseret News. You can check him out on Twitter at Drew J. And uh, certainly check out all his work this week uh, covering BYU ahead of this game uh, with the Ducks. And I uh, look forward to seeing you on Saturday in Hudson, Jay. I'm looking forward to it, too. Haven't, haven't ever been there. It's going to be, should be a lot of fun. Yes, sir. 